Oh my, when I heard John practicing that earlier this morning, I said, I told him, I know that that is going to go through my mind all week. And I think that's a good thing. Thank you so much. Love one another. What's love got to do with it? I saw a short program about Tina Turner about a week ago, and I'm happy to report that she's alive and well and happy and living in Switzerland. But if you're anything like me, when you hear the phrase, what's love got to do with it, you immediately think about her 1984 song, what's love got to do, got to do with it. What's love but a sweet old-fashioned notion, a second-hand emotion? What's love got to do, got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? It was especially poignant to hear her sing those lyrics because by the time she did so, we, the public, knew the turmoil, the ugliness, and the violence that had existed in her marriage to Ike Turner. And although that marriage ended in 1978, it was obvious that it took her decades to work through some painful memories. What's love got to do with it? If we were ever asked on a TV game show to name the qualities of love, most of us here and those streaming the service online could tick off many, if not all, of the qualities of love because we've heard them listed over and over again in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind, not envious, boastful, arrogant, or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Those verses are often used in wedding ceremonies because this kind of love is the most difficult the most difficult type, the type of love Jesus spoke about. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. The Greeks have helped our understanding of love by defining four types of love. Philios, a strong liking, a strong deep friendship, Storge, which is the love that exists between parents and children, often between siblings, and can exist in a good marriage. Eros, sexual, passionate love. And agape, the love that is the very nature of God. Agape love is not a feeling, it's an action. About 20 years ago, a book by the author Gary Smalley called Love as a Decision was in vogue for Presbyterian study groups. You may have studied it. Smalley died in 2016, but I believe his book was a real blessing to the church because he had it right. Love is a decision. It's not just some warm, fuzzy feeling or the desire to do good. Agape love always asks, are you willing to do things for my sake that you do not want to do? Loving is difficult. It's no wonder Jesus had to spell it out for us many times. John recorded him saying it even one more time in the 15th chapter, love others in the same way I have loved you. Is that clear enough? Do you get it? Jesus might have said. If you and I dare to claim the title Christian, then love has everything to do with us, everything to do with the church. 
Which brings us to what's happening now in America. Any of us who pay attention to the news or surf the internet or spend time on social media know that currently the church is in the news and not in a good way. Let's face it, we've always had our detractors. The church is an easy target and people have long memories. But we don't need to go back to the Crusades to be criticized. Today's news is enough to make us wince in shame and disgust. Clergy misconduct, clergy abuse of children, discrimination against women, indigenous children taken by churches and the government and abused and buried in unmarked graves, the shocking audacity of riches of some mega churches and their pastors, and the list goes on and on. William Willimon, who happens to turn 75 years old just today, knows the mainline church very well. He's a retired United Methodist bishop. He's still professor of the practice of Christian ministry at Duke University. In a passage about the church as the bride of Christ, Willimon writes, Jesus has many admirers who feel he married beneath his station. The church has failed to live up to her great commission in so many ways, large and small. Beloved author C.S. Lewis, in his insightful little book, The Screwtape Letters, describes the devil's delight that the church is one of his best allies in the battle for the souls of new converts. And a tiny little example in my own life to prove that I, I can be one of those problems. I was worshiping with, in our son's church recently, and a family sat behind us in the pew, and they spoke loudly through the whole service to their little children. And it took everything in me not to turn around and shush them. Me, a pastor who wants people to come to the church, Thankfully, I managed to control myself, but I, I, you know, I recognize I'm part of the problem. I am part of the problem that is the church. But basic, recently, the church is in the news in a whole new troublesome way. Just yesterday, the New York Times published an article by Maureen Dowd entitled, Too Much Church in the State. Dowd, a Roman Catholic herself, is concerned about the makeup of the Supreme Court. She writes, there is an astonishing preponderance of Catholics on the Supreme Court. Six out of the nine justices and a seventh, Neil Gorsuch, was raised as a Catholic and went to the same Jesuit boys high school in a Maryland suburb that Brett Kavanaugh and my nephew did. She continues, Last year at Thomas Aquinas College in California, Justice Samuel Alito fretted that there's a growing cultural hostility towards Christianity and Catholicism. There's a real movement, he said, to suppress the expression of anything that opposes the secular orthodoxy. But is it his job or the job of the justices to suppress the will of others to protect their narrow view of orthodoxy? If the society doesn't respect religion, Alito has also said, religious liberty becomes imperiled. But I worry about religion. Nothing in what we have heard or read sounds very Christian to the non-believer. There are no words of comfort or compassion for women who are carrying the result of rape or incest. No loving sympathy or solace 
for th those with horrendously dangerous medical condition or fetuses that simply cannot survive. I worry for the church if the liberty of non-religious people or religious people with differing beliefs is imperiled or abridged because of a minority religious viewpoint. We may be teetering on a brink here. Is it possible that the brand Christian will continue to be used as a weapon? Will it be degraded in the eyes of the nation and continue to suffer because some Christians have forgotten their primary directives? Douglas John Hall, former pastor and emeritus professor of theology at McGill, wrote something that should be a warning to us all. The conversion of Constantine was the effective be beginning of Christendom, namely, of that particular form of the Christian religion that consists of a strong alliance of Christianity with political and social power, something amounting to the practical identification of Christianity with the dominant forces of the society in which it finds itself. Isn't this the kind of Christianity, the kind that's propping up Vladimir Putin's rebellion as we see Russian Orthodox the Russian Orthodox Church supporting his every move, we must not let this brand of Christianity tarnish the church of Jesus Christ here. Douglas John Hall also writes with the antidote to that form of false Christianity. The antidote is Jesus. Jesus saves. He saves us for life, for giving ourselves over to its joys and sorrows, to predictable and unpredictable occurrences, its routines and surprises. Jesus saves us from the awful habit we have of trying to save ourselves, of sparing our energies, of protecting our minds and souls and bodies from the life struggle. Jesus saves us for the spend thriftiness of love. The spend thriftiness of love, I love that phrase. I've heard Jesus' words tossed back in our faces on network TV by people who are angry at what they fear is coming from the Supreme Court. One young black woman practically screamed at the camera, I thought you Christians were all about loving one another. Well, if this is your idea of love, you can go to hell. As I watched that young woman's anguish, I wanted to speak with her. I wanted to put my arm around her and invite her to church, to this church, or any church as loving and caring as this one. And I wish I could do the same for all the naysayers I watch on the news and those who vilify Christianity on social media. At my ordination 30 years ago, Professor Don Wardlaw preached a sermon about the story that we know as the prodigal son. But he entitled it, Tell Them About the Prodigal Father, Grayson. He stressed the spend thriftiness of love, the prodigal love that the father offered those two sons of his. They say that preachers often preach to themselves. They preach what they need to hear. And certainly in my case, I think that's true. I grew up in an Irish Catholic family, a family who disciplined with two well-worn tools, guilt and shame. Reminders of the 
angry, frowning God of the Old Testament were served up as regularly as meals. I grew up knowing that God was watching everything I did, listening to every conversation, checking every report card, every poorly done chore, and finding me wanting in it all. So it shouldn't be a surprise when I pull out random sermons from among the 900 or so I've preached that I find most of them have at their center an affirmation of the generous, overwhelming, undeserved, amazing, some might say wanton love of God. That's the love that we want to tell them about, isn't it? It was believing in God's unconditional love, God's amazing grace, that turned my life around and gave me my true identity. But the naysayers don't know, and the ones trying to judge, trying to demand, trying to have their way don't know either. They have no idea what real Christianity looks like. They haven't experienced church. They don't know you. You know, the other day I saw a lovely little video of turtles in a pond and it made me cry because it made me think of the church. You probably see it at some point. There's one unfortunate little turtle struggling ferociously on its back, struggling in the midst of 20 or 30 other turtles who are swimming normally, minding their own business. But as this poor upside down turtle struggles and struggles, suddenly all of the turtles, about 20 or 30 of them start enclosing getting closer and closer to the struggling one. And when they get very close to that one, he sort of gives up and he just gets calm. And together they flip him over and then they all go there on their merry way. And I, I cried because I saw, I saw the church in the struggling turtle and all you wonderful helpers that flipped it over. Isn't that what we do as a church? For those around us, and those we seek to aid, to be with them when they struggle, to lend aid without asking if they deserve it, without questioning how they got flipped wrong in the first place, to dare getting flipped over ourselves in the process of helping them. Michael Lindvall is the former pastor of Brick Presbyterian Church and First Presbyterian Church in Ann Arbor. But I know him best as the author of two little books I have, about the adventures of a small-time pastor. I recommend them to you. The Good News from North Haven and Leaving North Haven. Linval is such a great storyteller that this small-town pastor has been invited to open the Scottish Parliament with a devotion a few times. And in 2017, he was asked to preach to Queen Elizabeth when she was at Balmoral Castle with the royal family. So you know he's good. His books are full of wonderful stories from his own experience in the pseudonym, however, of the Reverend David Battles. One story called Our Organist is about his experience of being a guest supply preacher for a tiny church in a fictional town called Carthage Lake, Minnesota. The little flock of 11 souls hadn't had a minister of its own since 1939, but one Sunday each month at noon, they gather to worship and listen attentively to whatever supply preacher they can get to drive out to their dwindling town. The clerk of the congregation, Lloyd Larson, assured the pastor of 100% attendance if he came, and he promised an organist, the same organist Carthage Lake had been promising guest preachers for 60 years, 
Lloyd's sister-in-law, Agnes Rigstad. The Sunday of his guest appearance arrived and Reverend David Battles describes the small white frame building, the large sentimental stained glass windows of Jesus the Good Shepherd, lamb in one arm, staff in the other, and Jesus praying alone in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the two cars and a pickup truck that he saw in the parking lot. There were actually 12 worshipers gathered, including a young man, scattered throughout the sanctuary, much as you are today. Lloyd explained that there was no bulletin, that the preacher should just announce the hymns. So David nodded to the organist, with her wig slightly askew, who responded with a broad, toothy smile. Worship began. Reverend Battles announced the opening hymn, number 204, Spirit of God, Descend Upon My Heart. He had taken a lot of time choosing these hymns. They went perfectly with the sermon. Agnes, the organist, smiled at him and played, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. The 11 elderly members sang it by memory. Only the young man reached for a hymnal. Following the sermon, David wondered if Agnes was hard of hearing. So he loudly announced the next hymn, Love divine, all loves excelling. He looked directly at Agnes, who smiled back and played, I love to tell the story. After the prayers and offering, he walked over to the organ bench, bent down and whispered, Agnes, what are we going to sing? And she smiled and began to play, just as I am, without one plea. After worship, Agnes shook his hand but didn't say a word. Lloyd sheepishly explained, uh, I forgot to tell you about Agnes. You don't need to tell what hymn it's going to be, only when. Agnes only knows those three hymns, so we always sing them. Good grief, Lloyd. You mean to tell me you've been singing the same three hymns for 60 years? Lloyd was looking down then, concentrating on the frayed sanctuary carpet. Well, we like those hymns well enough, and we know them by heart, and she is our organist. Later, David met the young man, Neil Larson, who explained he was Lloyd's grandson. Agnes is my late grandmother's little sister, Lloyd's wife's baby sister, but she learned to, she's never been quite right. She never says more than a few words, but she learned to play those hymns one week 60 years ago when the regular organist got sick. It was a moment of musical emergency around here. Anyway, she hasn't been able to learn anything else since. Playing the organ this one Sunday a month means the world to her. Sometimes I think it's mostly for her that they keep the church open. Aunt Agnes lives for the first Sunday of the month. This is what church is. Isn't this what we should be about? Showing love to one another, holding together as the varied forces of society and the rigors of time and age try to pull us apart? If I speak in the tongues of mortals and angels but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. The selfless, prodigal, wanton, agape love that God in Christ Jesus offers is our new commandment. 
It's the way we are to interact with one another and with all others. Thinking of others before ourselves doesn't come naturally. Jesus knew that. He told us again and again to love one another, to love one another as we love ourselves, to love one another as he loved us. But then he showed us by his model in life, by his death for our sake. You and I know what selfless human behavior looks like. We've seen it expressed in the body of Christ right here. Right here and now, it is changing hearts and minds, changing lives. If only we could share that with the world, what a different place it might be. After that service in First Presbyterian Church of Carthage Lake, Neil Larson lingered on. Aunt Agnes lives for the first Sunday of the month, he said to David Battles. Sometimes I think it's mostly for her that they keep the church open. They asked me to play, of course, he went on. They had to ask, but Grandpa knew that I'd say no. I remember how he sighed with relief when I said no, and he slapped me on the back. You're an organist? The preacher asked. Eastman, class of 84. I've had some big church jobs, the last one down in Texas. Big church, brand new organ, 102 ranks, four services a Sunday. <sighs> then I got sick. I've been HIV positive for six years. The personnel committee of the church figured it out. The weight loss, all the sick days. The fact that I'm not married. They told me it would be best if I moved on, but not until after Christmas, of course. My parents live in St. Paul, but my father and I haven't spoken since I was 19. I'm not sick enough to go to the hospital just too tired most of the time. I really had nowhere else to go. My grandfather said I could move in with him and Agnes, and to tell you the truth, I feel right at home in a town of 80-year-olds. He paused and went on. They keep Agnes, and they took me in. And since I moved here, most every night, Lloyd or old man Ingstrom from down the road opens the church for me, if it's cold, they lay a fire in the wood stove, and then I play the organ. It's a sweet little instrument, believe it or not. Lloyd has kept it up. These last weeks, it's been almost warm in the evenings, so they leave the doors and the windows of the church open, and everybody sits out on their front porches and listens to me play. Bach, Buxtehude, Vidor, all the stuff I love. And then they clap from their porches. Even Agnes claps. Jesus said, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>